Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Sleep Like a Baby podcast. I'm your host Hannah and I'm an infant sleep consultant as well as a mum living and working in South East London. This is a podcast about all things baby sleep and how we can tackle these naptime nightmares and nocturnal disasters that comes as part of parenting little people with responsiveness, gentleness and a holistic approach to sleep. So if you're not up for crying it out but waiting it out doesn't feel like an option for you right now either welcome to the middle ground this is the place for you so recording this week's episode for me and listening back to it and editing it I can't help but feel a massive surge of imposter syndrome (laughs) because I am not a scientific sciencey person I have no background in kind of biology chemistry any of that stuff beyond very very basic uh, like secondary school education and even then I, I wasn't great at science at school but I am inc- just endlessly fascinated in human development and particularly in neuroscience so I read a lot about brain development. I've done studying into it, of course, as part of my training for the job that I do, but I'm obviously I'm no brain expert. And yet today I'm delighted to say that I got a chance to speak to a genuine brain expert. So my guest on this week's episode is none other than a neuroscientist who specializes in the changes that take place in the parental brain during and after pregnancy which is just a dream come true for me um, because I think that is possibly the most interesting part of all of this stuff of everything about sleep is about how our brains work and that's why sleep is so complicated right because we have these very sophisticated brains on our shoulders even though they may not always feel that sophisticated, they are amazing supercomputers. And our little babies are born with brains that are only 25% the size of an adult brain. So we have so much brain growth to go to take place once we're born. And that really influences and impacts how we sleep at night so whenever your little one is going through a major developmental um, leap forward they're acquiring new skills or um, their emotional world is shifting and they're going through something like separation anxiety all of these things take place in the brain and impact how they sleep at night. Now, some babies just have a slightly sleepier temperament. They're just naturally inclined that way and they'll kind of be less, uh, shall we say, disrupted by these big brain development changes. But for most babies, sleep will sometimes hit the skids when development goes, um, you know, becomes a thing for a week or two and it goes kind of explodes out. So... I am so fascinated in how and why this happens, but also I'm really fascinated in what happens in our parental brains as well. So I'm really thrilled to introduce Rosio Lopez Zunini, and I'm really sorry to Rosio for completely butchering the pronunciation of her name there. I'm really sorry. That was extremely British of me and um, we'll practice it for hopefully another interview at some point. 
So Rosio runs an amazing course that you can buy online at her website, newbornparents.net. And essentially, um, what Rosio is all about is parents understanding the changes that happen in their own brains and how that influences how they parent. She also has training in, um, obviously, as well as being a neuroscientist and an academic, Rosio also has training in infant sleep. So I was just so thrilled that she could give me an hour of her time. And uh, if you're interested in her work and finding out more about her, her Instagram and her website are linked in the show notes. And you can also check out what she's all about via her free email series and ebook, which gives you a bit of an idea of what her course is all about if, um, if you're not ready to sign up straight away. Although I would really recommend it because... This woman really knows her stuff. She's also a mum of two and I just absolutely love talking to her today. I thought it was such an amazing insight, not only to talk a lot about brains and what's going on for our own brains when we become parents, but also to hear about her own upbringing in Paraguay and then becoming a mother herself in Canada, which had a, has such a different cultural um approach to parenting and particularly infant sleep so that was really fascinating and she now lives in Spain as well so there's another angle there from that kind of South American to North American to European um, experience of being a parent so it's absolutely fascinating and thank you Rizio for explaining things that have happened in my own brain (laughs) helping me understand myself a bit better which has been always super helpful as well and just quickly before I play this week's interview I just had a little bit of a housekeeping announcement which is that I've been running some online webinars about infant sleep so newborns four to seven month olds and eight to twelve month olds which um you can now book online for or if you miss them they are available to purchase as a replay on my website and again that's all available in the show notes as well Um, and I just want to say thank you to everyone that's come along to the webinars so far I've really enjoyed talking to everybody and at the end of each one we do a live Q&A as well so if you can sign on to one of my upcoming live sessions then um, that's always really fun and a chance to talk things through with myself and other parents about uh, what's normal and what's going on for sleep with your little one. Okay, without any further ado, here is my interview with Rocio. I feel like I've read a lot about how nurturing and responsive caregiving is beneficial for a a developing baby's brain. So I think back to when I left the hospital with a newborn in 2019 and I actually had a leaflet that told me that I couldn't spoil my baby and that cuddles and closeness and kisses and all those things were actually really good for my baby's brain development. So I then had that message reinforced again. I went to a local sling library to find out what I could do with a baby that I could never put down and they also shared this message with me that carrying babies keeping them close feeding regularly all these things really supports the neurological growth okay but I had never really heard anything about my brain and um 
often I notice like a really common phrase that I have with new clients when I speak to them is uh, they will say things like, I'm sorry, I just can't listen to her cry for long periods or I try to put my baby down drowsy but awake or self-settle but he just screams and I know that I should be stronger. Like I know it's my fault that I can't handle that. Like, but I, you know, I need help. And often I also see that this can lead to kind of conflict in in people's lives. So the new mum or the new dad might be told by a grandparent or a neighbour or a friend that they they just need to cry it out, um, that they need to stop being so soft or weak or let the baby have get the air into their lungs, etc. But I feel like this message of well, why does that feel so hard for a parent to do? Why is that not why why do our instincts say otherwise is just not really very well known? Uh, so regular listeners to this podcast as well will know that the cry it out approach is definitely not the only way um, or a way that I advocate for in order to get better sleep for a baby. Um, but it's still something that I think pretty much all new parents hear at some point is that they they need to toughen up a little bit and deal with their babies crying, even if they want to respond. And so that's why I'm just thrilled to, thrilled to talk to you today, Rosio, because you are a neuroscientist and a mother and you run an amazing online course all about the changes that happen in the parental brain and how that influences caregiving. So thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Hannah. Oh, it's, I'm just, yeah, I have so much to talk to you about. Um, and I love that, as you say on your website, this is such an important message. I just don't think that enough people know. It's certainly something I didn't know when I had a baby was that when you become a parent, your brain undergoes the biggest change of its adult life. And like, just for me, learning that was such a game changer. But what, what do you mean when you say that? Yeah. Um, I didn't even know this, like, (laughs) um, not long ago because I, yes, I'm a neuroscientist, but Um, I didn't start learning about the parental brain until more recently in the past year, probably. And I knew there were changes, but I didn't know they were so massive. Like it really is, according to Dr. Ruth Ruth Feldman, who is a pioneer in this type of research, according to her, this is the biggest uh, neuroplastic change that you get in your adult life. So because there are so many changes in all of, uh, there is a a big interconnected um, um, brain network that is uh, responsible for like so many things like, um, for example, protecting our babies, regulating ourselves, um, trying to read our baby's cues, all of that. So it's just massive, the change that we go through. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people talk about baby brain or or things like that. Um, I mean, that was kind of what I knew, but I I always felt like that was like a a silly thing that was like a a bad thing as well, that you just had to wait for your baby brain to leave you and then you could have a normal brain again. (laughs) But I don't think that's true, is it? No, no, it's not true. In fact, there is research from this year, even super new, that has shown these changes stay uh, with us for life. Um, they research uh, the brains of older people that are parents and the, and the brain changes were still there. They compared to non-parents and they look some of the changes that they found in, in other samples of postpartum women, let's say, 
um, they were very similar still. So yeah, your brain changes and is for life and is an improved brain. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing because you know, so so many. I'm, I don't know if you felt this way when you became a mother, but so many of us feel like we really are very different. Like we feel like a, a, we've changed as people. Our priorities change. Our prefer, you know, all of the, so much. It almost feels like your personality changes sometimes, and that can oh, be yeah. very hard as well, can't it? Because you can miss your old self and kind of scary but it's so good to know that that's like a a biological scientific thing as well <laughs> yeah yeah it's actually happened at the physical level at the biological level which is amazing it's not just something you're imagining so yeah this is why I think it, this information is so important that we know it's like you say we hear all of our babies all about babies brains but we need to know about our brains yeah, as well yeah, yeah so when you say that our brain is is malleable or plastic what what do you mean for someone that has no knowledge of neuroscience <laughs> what does that yeah. what is that <laughs> so it means that the brain reorganizes itself as a result of experience and in the past um, it has been thought that the brain didn't change much um, but in the last 20 years or so, there's been a lot of discoveries and the paradigm has changed. Now we know that neuroplasticity exists, not only in babies or children, but, or, but also in adults. And, and now like one type of neuroplasticity is brought about by parenthood and not only by, by the, the hormones and all of that but also by the experience of taking care of the of our babies yeah that's that's so that's fascinating fascinating and when did when did those changes start to happen for a person then <clears throat> so research has shown that in women it starts to happen um in the third tri trimester of pregnancy already Wow. Yeah, and, and the biggest changes um, happen from, from starting from there up until one year until uh, postpartum. Wow, that's so like yeah. the whole first year of your baby's life, your brain is still changing yes. and adapting and wow. Adapt your baby and in fathers too yeah. but the the evidence that we have, the most recent, again, this is also new, yeah. like has been published also this study with fathers and the earliest changes have been found in their brains also in the early postpartum as soon as the baby is born the father's brain also starts changing wow and I've also read that this is these changes um are the same obviously for fathers but also um like same-sex couples um or yes. like other like non-birth giving parents so adoptive parents surrogate parents you know yeah. yeah, this is also fascinating. They did a study with uh, same-sex couples, uh, males, and they compared it to normal or to heterogeneous couples, and they found that the primary caregiver, who was a male, um, had enormous enormous brain changes, and they actually resemble the brain changes in the mothers. That's amazing. And yet people will tell you that men can't be nurturing like mothers or, you know, I think that's really, really fascinating and such new information. Yeah, this is also very new. I think it was published in like 2018. Wow. And I was blown away by it. I was like, wow. Yeah. Because yes, I was expecting like that the brains were, were going to change, but they actually look that some of the connections were similar to the mother's and not the fathers wow. because the, the brains of the mothers and fathers wire differently they they change um, differently mm -hmm. and 
what they found is that with, when the person is a primary caregiver, and in this case was a male, um, some of the connections were very similar to the mothers. That's, yeah. that's, that's amazing. And it, am I right in saying then the more um, attuned you are to your baby, the more hands-on, nurturing, responsive, uh, just involved generally day-to-day you are with, a, with an infant, the more your brain changes then? Yeah, and this has been, uh, this particular finding actually has been shown in fathers. Mm-hmm. So it has been shown that for fathers is really, really important that they spend time with their babies so that uh, it's d- directly related to the amount of, of connections in the brain. Wow. Oh, it's so fascinating, isn't it? Um, so well, let's talk about what those changes actually look like for a brain then. So mm-hmm. when, when we say our brains change, yeah, what, what's going on? So there are many sub-networks. So one of the networks that we see is called, scientists call it the motivation network. Um, but that's like, what does that mean, right? So when I read the research, I'm like, okay, so how can I make this more understandable? It's like, oh, so it's how when you fall in love. So I call it the in love network. Yeah. So this is the network that becomes activated when we feel pleasure taking care of our babies. And so this is what um, keep us motivated uh-huh. to care for our baby because it feels good. So this is, yeah, this is one of the networks. And the brain actually looks very similar to, uh, this part of the brain looks similar to when we fall in love. It overlaps with the same neural networks. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I always say that, you know, cuddling and being close, it feels good for a reason. It's not just that cuddles are nice. And that's like that. That's your brain saying, seek this out. This is good for both of us. Do more of this. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually addictive. It actually has shown in rats. Um, uh, in in rat moms, they had uh, they gave them the choice of cocaine or being with their pups. And I think before they were addicted to cocaine or something. I I don't know the details of this study, yeah. <laughs> but I do know that they prefer being with their pups. Oh, the yeah, <laughs> that's so lovely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So even cocaine addicted rats love love cuddles. <laughs> they prefer their pups. Yeah. yeah. That's so sweet. Yeah. 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 So this this idea that, you know, if you're if you don't put your baby down, if you don't teach them to I don't know, sleep independently or if you you know that all of that stuff, you, you need to some people are told they need to pass their baby around. But if you don't want to, if you want to be the one holding or feeding or cuddling your baby, you can make, be made to feel like that's wrong and that you're doing something wrong. But actually, that's just your brain. That's just how. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're meant to to do this yeah yeah and what if um what I would love to know is that you know that that love that rush of love that you feel for your baby doesn't happen for everyone so for lots of people immediately after birth it will take time to develop that bond and that relationship and not everyone experiences that big rush of love but what's happening in the brain is is your brain still changing even if you're not feeling it straight away oh yeah 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 I I, yeah I know it can be so different right like it individual experience about feeling uh, this love and like this uh, addiction sort of say to smell your baby yeah it doesn't come the same for everyone but the brain is definitely changing um I think something that is pretty universal what this is not from research it's just what I hear moms saying they all are very alert Mm -hmm. right it's like 
something goes on in your brain that you need to protect this baby. Yeah. I, I had to yet encounter a mom that doesn't feel this, even though they might not fall in love yet with their baby. Yeah. They want to protect their baby. And again, this is another sub network. Scientists call it the salient network. Mm-hmm. Because it's like you are, your salient stimulus is your baby and you need to protect and you're alert. Um, just to make sure that the, your baby survives, right? So yeah. that's another network. <clears throat> yeah, something I found really um, incredible was when my son was very, very young, suddenly like crossing the street was a very, with him, was a very different experience to what it had been like a few months before. You know, I felt like I was really hyper vigilant, hyper alert. Mm-hmm. Um, I had lots of... Um, also like intrusive thoughts about things that could go wrong and I just felt I'm not necessarily someone like I wouldn't have described myself as an anxious person or someone who'd lived with a lot of anxiety and yet suddenly all of these worst case scenarios were flooding my brain and I was looking at what's that car over there doing what's that noise is it safe all of those things and just crossing the road became this huge (laughs) thing to suddenly navigate Oh, yeah. And that's your salient network. I, I call it the, the protective network, yeah. by the way. Um, that's right there. That's what it's doing. And it's all normal. I know that it, there is a threshold where like it becomes sort of a, um, a disorder, so to say. But mm-hmm. I think all moms, to some extent, have these feelings, have these thoughts. And again, this is biological. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Oh, it's absolutely fascinating. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so your brain starts to change during pregnancy and immediately for that first year during your child's life. And the more that you nurture, the more your brain changes and influences that. Um, and it affects all these neural pathways and networks in your brain. Um, but in your course, you talk about the experiences that can actually shape the wiring of your brain. What, what does that mean? What experiences exactly shape that wiring yeah um again because neuroplasticity is reorganization of of your brain and depending on your experience so not just because you had a baby yes your brain is going to change but there are certain things that can help your brain so um because neuroplasticity is, is experience dependent so for example breastfeeding has been shown to um, affect the wiring of the brain. Oh, wow. um, for example, studies that compare um, breastfeeding chest, uh, well, not chest feeding, breastfeeding because all the mo- were all the, the the moms in the sample were uh, yeah, yeah women. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I use just breastfeeding the yeah. term. Um, they have shown differences in brain activation in areas. Um, uh, associated with empathy, for example. So they show greater activation than moms that were exclusively uh, formula feeding. But again, this is not to be like against formula or anything. Um, but yeah. I think it has more to do with actually the release of oxytocin. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Because when you breastfeed, you release oxytocin. And this is what makes you want to be with your baby and activates your motivation network. So I don't want people to yeah. feel like, oh my God, I'm formula feeding. I'm like, no, I actually think it's oxytocin and you can activate your oxytocin system while formula feeding as well. Yes. Yeah. So I think that I've read some really interesting research or uh, and, and, and people writing about formula feeding in the sense of that it's really important for... Um, 
the primary caregiver to be the one who does the majority of feeds you know or you know it's fine obviously it's great if you can share feeds with another caregiver that's brilliant and it gives you a break and that's a really lovely bonding experience for them but I think a lot of mums who are bottle feeding feel a pressure for everyone else to feed the baby and actually um, no matter how you feed them whether that's from your breast or from a bottle I think there is quite a strong feeling of you wanting to feed your child and I think that's that's quite an important part of your development as a as a primary caregiver Mm -hmm, exactly and yeah that's why one of the things that I I talk about in my course I'm like I don't want people to go out with them and say, that, oh my God, like, because sometimes breastfeeding just doesn't work, right? Or you yeah. don't want to do it and that's perfectly fine. But yeah, I do recommend that at least in the first trimester, yeah. the yeah. primary caregivers uh, do the feeding, even if it's with bottle feeding, because uh, you can activate your oxytocin system like that. Yeah. And bottle feeding can be just as yeah responsive and exactly. bonding and beautiful. Um, but I think it would be really interesting to hear a bit more about oxytocin because what I what I hear a lot from talking to to, to new mums all the time is that they might say before they have a baby they didn't really feel that strongly about breastfeeding they thought oh maybe I'll give it a go let's see what happens and then when the baby's here and this was my experience I felt a very um like primal urge to feed my baby from my body and it really surprised me that I felt that strong like that kind of need to because I, I didn't think I was going to um and is that is that related to the oxytocin that do you need to make milk yes absolutely so um I know other women that felt the same yeah. by the way yeah yeah they had this urge uncontrollable right <laughs> like, yeah. and yes I think it's related to the release of oxytocin because when you start breastfeeding it's like particularly the first time you never got this shot of oxytocin before and right there is like imprinted like oh this experience this breastfeeding experience is why it will is is it gets imprinted so it feels good Uh uh, and you feel the urge to do this it's all um um supported by the oxytocin system it's fascinating and you know and I should also add that I had a really hard time breastfeeding and mm-hmm. it's in many ways I hated it because it was really really difficult we had so many problems and um people some people around me couldn't understand why I was pushing myself so much to do it um and I think some of that was from like some pressures I put on myself but also I felt like it was strange, even though it wasn't working out. And even though I was kind of killing myself doing it, I also felt like I almost didn't have a choice because my body just kept wanting to keep going. Very weird, very yeah. weird experience. Um, so if people aren't aware, though, could you explain what what is oxytocin? So oxytocin is an ancient hormone. It's present in all mammals. It's like evolutionary, super old. And in, in humans, it's responsible for bonding. Uh-huh. Um, it underlies all our bonding processes, attachment. We release it when we are with our partners, when we're with friends, and obviously <laughs> with our babies. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, that's the role of oxytocin. And it plays a yeah, it plays a huge role in, in our parental brain. <clears throat> Great. So we need oxytocin in order to give birth as well, doesn't it? It stimulates labor and then yeah. milk production. And yeah, as you say, it's just this, it's the love hormone that just makes us feel um, bonded. And, and, and that is a survival thing as well. I think uh, that's a really important yeah. 
thing to remind ourselves that we literally we only survive you know human babies are so vulnerable when we're born you know like we're the most we're the most vulnerable of all the primates aren't we when we're when we're born so if we don't have someone that's going to love us so hard that they'll put up with that neediness then we just won't survive yeah absolutely and this is why oxytocin needs to be there because otherwise we'll just won't care right yeah because yeah. there for our survival is what well got us here. Yeah. I before I had a baby I used to look at other parents and I used to think god that looks so hard. You know like the nappy changes, the feeding, the cleaning, the constant like naps and all. I'd look at all the work they were doing and thinking I don't know how they just keep going. And then it's strange because then you have your baby and you just you just do it and it's yeah, I guess that's just the power of being uh, addicted. It's the power. <laughs> The Sleep Like a Baby podcast is supported by The Octopus Club, the online marketplace where you can buy, sell and give away baby and kid stuff without any hassle. If your home is piling up with toys, clothes and bits of kit that your little one no longer uses, The Octopus Club offers an easy, environmentally friendly way of selling or donating things to other families. And if you're on the hunt for high quality secondhand goods, this is the place for you. Honestly, the stuff on there is gorgeous. Check them out on Instagram or go straight to their website, theoctopusclub.com to sign up today. And I noticed on your course that you talked about... um, how your parental brain is capable of parenting and challenging conditions mm. what does yes. what does that mean so um again this is another sub network that we have in our brain um is the emotion regulation network yeah so this is the network that becomes active when we when we encounter uh, a challenging situation in in our parenting journey so basically what we have what we do is we regulate ourselves first um, and then, uh, like that, we provide appropriate sensitive behavior to our infants, irrespective of, of their behavior. Mm-hmm. We are meant to do this, and it can be very hard at the beginning. Yeah, and we're gonna screw up for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Like we're talking about neuroplasticity, so um, this changes and it becomes better with practice. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, and by challenging conditions, well, one challenging condition, obviously, is infant sleep. Uh, 100% of parents are going to agree with this, I yeah. think. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, my so God. So, I'm a big advocate for um, really being mindful that we have this network in our brain and that we should try to use it as much as possible yeah. during situations at nighttime, for example, Um or like, well, in the toddler who years, you're going to use it all day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> so yeah. let's talk about sleep then. Mm-hmm. Um, so because you've got a background in infant sleep as well, haven't you? Um, I, I had, um, I, I was trained with by Greer Kirschenbaum yeah. from Nurture Science. Uh, uh, I took her infant sleep educator course, which is amazing, by the way. Yes. And that's where I learned a lot about about infant sleep yeah and so so um Greer is a neuroscientist you're a neuroscientist so I would love to ask you um about sleep deprivation and the parental brain um Mm -hmm. because a lot of people who um are really into sleep 
training and promote that we'll talk about Mm. how a parent can't possibly be a good parent if they're not if they're if they're not sleeping at night Mm -hmm. uh, which really annoys me Um, Mm -hmm. because obviously everybody wants right like eight hours unbroken sleep every night but that's not going to happen because you've got a baby (laughs) Mm -hmm. um but what are your thoughts on that um about sleep deprivation in parents um so it's very i i understand that argument that yeah that's one of the reasons why we need to sleep train um but if we we didn't have the sleep training culture that we have many of the problems wouldn't exist it's not only about sleep deprivation Mm -hmm. it's about anxiety provoking uh stuff that you hear advice that you get um, and so when you are in this anxious state, you're not even going to sleep well. Like, I mean, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yes. So I run um, like a infant sleep like a, a webinars. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I talk about at the start is if you look at the situation that's going on in the family, you've got these two main ingredients. You've got this really tiny, super vulnerable baby and a parent whose brain is hardwired to respond to their those vulnerable needs. And that's like the core and that's what's going on. And then around, then if you take a step back around you, there's just all of this noise about independence and separation and parenting experts and medical professionals who so supposedly know best and this culture that babies need to be independent. And that just engulfs the, that, that, um, that that family's life doesn't it and those two things can't exist at the same time you can't be a responsive parent and enforce separation before you're ready exactly so I think a lot of what's going on is also anxiety it's not only sleep deprivation Mm -hmm. um I have been there I am I I am sleep deprived even today (laughs) (laughs) I was up for like two hours anyways um uh, it's not he sleeps quite a lot but last night wasn't a good night yeah anyway so uh it's not only about sleep deprivation so i think i there's no scientific evidence for what i'm going to say this is my opinion yeah i do think that we do adapt to sleeping uh less hours and um to fragment the sleep mm-hmm. but if you think that th- this is wrong that your baby is you just created a bad habit that your baby not getting quality sleep and you are getting interrupted by your baby all the time and then there is the separation maybe your baby is in another room you have to get up this is all compounded it becomes a huge problem uh, mm-hmm. more than just sleep deprivation yeah. so that's what i think about like yeah it's not just about sleep deprivation you know what i mean yeah and how does that outside noise and those pressures how does that influence your parental brain then is it well we don't have direct evidence yeah. but I, I think that is it's just not supportive of the parental brain wiring if you're gonna hear these messages that will go completely against what your brain tells you to do I still had to find parents who tell me they enjoy sleep training do you know anyone no no one likes it everybody hates it even if even if you really believe that that's your only option and you're okay with it, uh-huh. I've, everyone I've spoken to said it was just one of the worst experiences of their life, you know, like genuinely traumatic. 
yeah exactly so we're not meant to do this and i'm not saying we shouldn't do anything to make our lives better and to sleep better and to maximize our sleep Mm -hmm. but we need to find ways that actually support um what we're meant to do Mm -hmm. as parents Mm -hmm. yeah definitely i agree so much um you know i i think we talk a lot about co-regulation don't we and I feel like sometimes it's a bit of a buzzword if you read a lot about like gentle parenting and gentle sleep and things um but could you could you explain what co-regulation actually means then and why it's so important yeah so um our infants are as you said this they're born very very immature Mm -hmm. so they cannot regulate themselves not even forget about emotions like even physically yeah like heart rate breathing body temperature yeah Yeah. (laughs) so we are the adults regulate them with our bodies Um, and so this is co-regulation right this is we are lending them our bodies and our brains so they can um, maintain homeostasis Mm -hmm. yeah so I think that's a really good point because I think when we talk about co-regulation often we talk about like from an emotional point of view and that is something that that is important that we can come on to but just yeah from a, a purely physical point of view and that's why parents are encouraged to sleep in the same room as their um, babies for the at least the first six months because of that co-regulation because you know of breathing and heart rate and all of those things they need our bodies to 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 learn how to do those things Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, when they're born, they're they're not meant to to sleep alone yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, they need us to regulate them. Yeah, and of course, frequent waking is protective and it's a survival mechanism. And I really wish that was a message that was more well known out there because and it doesn't make waking in the night any easier. As you say, we've both been there. I also am slightly sleep deprived today because my son is cutting a new molar, and oh my god, last night was. Oof. anyway um but you know so I do get it it doesn't make it easier to say you know and when he was a newborn it didn't but it did actually help me when I knew that this was protective for him and important and that he needed me to co-regulate these systems with him by picking him up cuddling him feeding him sleeping close to him all of those things to know that that was my job and that was actually like essential not even a, a preference like that would that's literally keeping him alive it did make it easier to know that yes of course because we're doing something extremely like you say essential and important yeah. so we can deal with some <laughs> some of that sleep deprivation also yeah also at the beginning like the first trimester um is very intense you know and it, it does become better and it goes up and down and then we can recover we can sleep more on some months or not and then and then well is this a roller coaster I guess that we need to get used to but yeah (laughs) it's not that we enjoy it but there's a purpose to it you know yeah yeah. and um and one of the reasons I wanted to ask you then about co-regulation I suppose is also the emotional co-regulation we do with infants because I think uh that's obviously a really important role that that a caregiver provides but also I think thinking about all of that noise around sleep training culture is that it's really hard to stay regulated yourself emotionally um when the the messages you're receiving from society is that how your baby is behaving is wrong and that Mm -hmm. you're causing it and and therefore I think it adds to your own dysregulation if say you have a 
seven-month-old who wakes for a feed and you're thinking, this is wrong, my baby should be sleeping through the night right now, my baby shouldn't feed at night after six months, all of these things that we're told. And what what that baby needs is a is a regulated caregiver to help soothe them so they can go back to sleep. But it's really hard to regulate yourself when you are feeling self-blame, anger, frustration because of outside noise. Oh my God, yeah, it's so hard and it's so unfair. This is something really, it, it gets me really... <laughs> Uh, angry because it's like we deserve better yeah we are learning this very important uh job I don't like calling it a job but you know what I mean yeah. we're here like learning like the the most important thing of our lives being in a relationship with our children and we need a supportive system and the system does nothing for us yeah yeah just tells us you're doing it wrong yeah yeah Oh, it makes me really angry. And um, it sounds really simple to say, just let it go. Don't listen to that stuff. (laughs) Um, But actually, if you can just shut that noise out and accept that you're not making a rod for your own back, that your instinct to go to your baby is right. When you actually really like believe that your instincts are right, you do somehow feel so much better about fragmented sleep it's weird (laughs) what I want I get you are that's what I was trying to convey yeah I don't think I did but you right there in that sentence that's what like I can do this you know I I have unwavering confidence nobody like nobody can take away from me that that away from me and so I can function I I have to say I was like a bit like I don't know if I can do this again with my second one, right? <laughs> but then I'm like, no, I actually can. It's perfectly fine. And I have to say, I have a supportive environment. Like I am surrounded by women that think the same, but uh-huh. by families that think, think the same. And so, yeah, like it's really, is not a big deal. All when you, when you shut, shut this noise uh, down. And so does, does the, your um, community, your intergenerational, intergenerational you know support all of these things does that influence your parental brain as well you mean like your extended family yeah yeah and your immediate community absolutely so um yeah Uh, in my course I talk about intergenerational transmission of parenting practices Uh and attachment styles both are influenced so we know this with animal research like rat uh, rats that uh, are high leaking and grooming with their pups then when these pups become mothers, they are high leaking and grooming. And then conversely, the rat pups that receive low leaking and grooming care, then they are going to become those types of mothers. Um, and, and in humans has been shown as well too that parenting, parenting practices are um, passed down. Wow. And yeah, and also attachment styles. That's so fascinating. So yeah. if you were nurtured as an infant... Um and had you know a high level of responsive care with a I suppose like an emotionally available um caregiver you're more likely to 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 be that kind of parent yourself yes it's more like I mean obviously there's no guarantees right yeah but it's all about probabilities and like likelihood right so yes research has shown this that you are more likely to be the type of parent and what if you haven't had that you know what if you find found out that 
um, what, you know, because often when we become parents for the first time, we talk to if, you know, if we have our parents are around, we might talk to them um, about how they raised us and find out things that can be kind of surprising, you know, conversations that you've never thought to have before. Suddenly yeah. you'll ask your mum or dad, like, did you do this? What's this? You know, um, and sometimes you can find out things that you might not be like happy to hear, you know. Yeah, and this is a very good question, by the way. And I go over into in my course that this is so important that we understand our childhoods, that we examine our childhoods with curiosity. Mm. Um, because research has shown that when this is in the attachment research, um, has shown, for example, that adults that have um, less than ideal childhoods and Therefore, they are they they didn't grow up securely attached. Mm-hmm. They actually um, some of them were found to have securely attached children themselves, and so scientists were like, "Oh, what what's happening here? What what?" And so what they found is that they actually made sense of their childhoods, mm-hmm. and so the scientists um, classify these people as people that have earned their security. Mm-hmm. So people that um, can tell their stories um, in a coherent way, they understand why it happened uh, the way it happened, then they can consciously parent in a different way mm-hmm. and then break the cycle. That's amazing. I mean, I, th- does this come back then to just uh, how neuroplastic, you know, the plasticity of our brains, you know, that yes. if we can put things into order and as you say, like find that, find the narratives and tell our stories and, and exactly. yeah that we can reorder things and then make positive changes exactly yeah because yeah and we're resilient as well mm. so we can definitely break cycles oh that's really good to hear <laughs> phew <laughs> oh. i know i know because oh, no, no, like most of us have something nobody has a perfect childhood yeah um, and so i'm like oh my god but then when you find out this type of research oh, okay I can do this. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I think maybe the, I don't know, I would love to know your thoughts on on sleep training then and the impact on on the brain, on both the baby and the parent's brain. Mm. Um, because I suppose there isn't any hard evidence that it causes long-term damage. Mm-hmm. But what what's your take on that? Yeah. So again, this is there's no research. Uh, and if you have you read Tracy Castles, yeah. um, so she's the one that does the best to me review on infant sleep uh, yeah. training research, and she's always very straightforward about it. And she says there's no long term evidence. No. So yeah, research wise, I cannot tell you much, but based on what we know, I can make some hy- hypotheses, right? Mm-hmm. Like if we are meant to respond, we know this, we have this caregiving network that is meant to give sensitive care to our infants, but we're told to withhold that. Mm. Um, This has not been studied, but my hypothesis will be that it will be quite detrimental for the wiring of my brain. Mm. Um, But again, (laughs) I just want to reiterate this, we don't know. I'm hypothesizing here, it has not been studied. Yeah, but that's the problem, isn't it? It's just that um it just, it just the research hasn't been done yet and a lot of this information is is so new and technologies are changing all the time and so it really frustrates me when sleep trainers say there's uh, it's been proven to be safe when actually what they mean is we haven't 
proven harm yet you know no. and that's there's a big difference between saying something is safe or it's been proven yeah. to be harmful um and I think as well that yeah we're, we're looking in the wrong direction sometimes we're looking for the um, the evidence that sleep training specifically harms the brain when actually as you said we have so much other evidence about the positiveness of of responsiveness you know we say so we have loads and loads of evidence to say the mm. more you respond and attune to your baby the better it is for everyone for their physical and mental health um and so sleep training just is it does not um it just doesn't um, fit, fit yeah. does it it doesn't it's not part <laughs> yeah. of that picture which is what I always say like it's just so incongruent with what we know mm-hmm. so even if it has not been shown directly we can uh, health professionals and anyone that um, gives advice to parents cannot give this type of advice yeah. because it has not been shown that it's safe you know what I mean and we know it's so incongruent with attachment research, with how the parental brain wires, with brain development. So we have to be cautious here. And somehow this is the default thing now, you know? Yes, yeah. And so if you're listening to this and you, um, perhaps you've made some choices with your child that you now feel aren't aligned with your views you know maybe you regret maybe you tried sleep training and and you hated it and you feel really bad about it and you think oh god have I ruined my baby's brain or you were you put your baby down a lot because someone told you that you should and, and or you whatever you didn't breastfeed or whatever you know whatever parental guilt thing that might be coming up when you're listening to this episode and I'm really sorry if anyone's listening to this and feeling those things because um I really that's really not the intention of this um, chat but if you're feeling that what um Rosio I'd love you to explain like what what can we do you know should people feel terrible for making mistakes basically with their baby (laughs) the old the old maternal guilt right that's like escape um we have all been there um I say that we can compensate once we know better we do better Uh uh-huh Um, And we are talking here about changing brains and how it changes all throughout our lives. And more so our children, they're even more, they have even more plastic brains. So once we know better, we do better and we compensate. We do what we know now, right? And try not to uh, self-blame. I mean, it's always, this is the thing too, like sleep training obviously has good intentions, right? You didn't mean to hurt your child. You had all of the best intentions, but you didn't know any better, um, in, in, with some of the decisions you took. And so when you know better, then you compensate and, um, for the best you know yeah I, I'd say I, I tried sleep training um I, tr- I tried it with my son um yeah and I also didn't like exclusively breastfeed I didn't have a a natural vaginal birth like all of the you know all of the things that are ideal I suppose you know in terms of um I don't know a lot of the parenting experts would say you know they're the things that you should do and um I've definitely had to work on like forgiving myself for certain choices I've made but I completely agree like when you know better you do better and um you have to just be open to you have to forgive yourself basically for exactly and then is we're in a relationship with our infants right mm-hmm. and relationships are uh, they're not perf- perfect yeah. we're gonna screw up right yeah. like you know like we don't have perfect relationships with our partners but yeah. 
or with our parents and but still we, we love each other and yeah. we make it work you know and so that's how we should look at at, at parenting it's a relationship and we make amends you know yeah. and trial and error and mis- I think you said this at the start like making mistakes is part of it you know that's the same yeah. with like learning your baby's cues no one just holds their baby and sees a particular behavior and goes oh that's it I know she's hungry or oh she's tired like everyone gets it wrong for a long time you know exactly. yeah we, we just have to know that we're gonna screw up yeah 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 definitely like and that and that screwing up is part of the process yeah um whatever that looks like for you I mean I've screwed up a lot so well me too and like there's no perfect like we all do like it doesn't matter if there are neuroscientists I didn't know many things when I had my my first one is eight years old eight years old so obviously I didn't know everything uh yeah so I screw up as well so everyone does it yeah yeah and I love that what you say there about relationships are always growing and evolving and we're always just yeah trying to do better and trying to not mess up but we all do mess up so it's okay (laughs) it's okay and also they learn you know yeah they learn from um if we apologize or we talk to them and we repair a situation this is a life lesson for them as well yes yeah and no one wants like a perfect parent is not good for a child exactly I mean they don't exist but even if they did even if like there was a robot that was just (laughs) <laughs> what they you know some really clever robot was just amazingly perfect that actually wouldn't be <laughs> great we need imperfect parents and imperfect children as well to let our babies yeah. be imperfect yeah and accepting that they're that they're not perfect as well I think that's uh but we have a culture I think that's really fixated on perfectionism oh yeah totally so and I'm fixing stuff yeah, and yeah 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 and selling stuff and fixing it and like yeah everything's a business opportunity isn't it uh, yeah. <laughs> um, can I ask you about where you grew up then and what your experiences of of yeah. infancy and childhood were I grew up in South America in uh, the heart of South America in Paraguay mm-hmm. um and uh, well South American culture is quite different from North American culture in many ways. Um, I grew up uh, in my grandparents' house mm-hmm. um, and my my parents had me quite young, so they were in university. Oh. So they went to study during the day and I spent my all my day with my grandparents, with my grandma, and uh, I had a lot of allo parents <laughs> because my, my grandma also had a 12-year-old um my aunt oh wow yeah so um, that that was my my first my early years I I lived with them until I was seven yeah um so and an allo parent is um a caregiver who's not uh your like a birth giving parent right or like an extended family member exactly Yeah. yeah so I to me this was just so natural so when I had my children I was like I want someone else like I don't want a nuclear family (laughs) yeah yeah I just had this in me that I somehow knew that I didn't have to do it all myself I didn't want to do it all myself yeah Um, we we can't that's the problem we can't do it all ourselves like even if people look like they're doing it all themselves and their nuclear families they're probably really really struggling with that you know sometimes things can look just so perfect from the outside absolutely again this I talk in my course because uh 
this is another principle. I have several principles that we go through, mm -hmm. and one of them is alloparental care. Mm -hmm. We didn't evolve as species to to raise our babies in a nuclear family. Yeah. Um, and this is, I think, one of the factors probably uh, of why we see um, postpartum depression. I'm not saying it's the only factor, but I think it's a contributing factor. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. So um, yeah. Uh, like postnatal mental illness and depression and anxiety is, is something I suppose we haven't really had a lot of time to go into but um, I do think that's I completely agree I think that is um, we are parenting in the west in quite unnatural circumstances a lot of the time and I do think that um, like if you feel that you you can't do it all for your you know if you're um, if you're listening to this and you're a, a mum or a dad who's pretty much like isolated from that extended family network or uh whatever and you feel like you can't do it all that's because you probably can't you know I I live 200 miles away from my nearest relative so I, I get it I I can't do it all I just can't you have to accept that I think <laughs> and then build your community around you so that um because then I think you feel like less of a failure because if you're always thinking I've got to do this I've got to do this on my own yeah you're, you're just setting yourself up to fail totally and it's so hard to for a lot of families actually leap far right you yeah. have no choice yeah and so the problem is the system doesn't support like there's no systems in place for us to build um a, a network of of allo parents let's say yeah. when far. um it's just so hard yeah yeah definitely yeah. definitely um yeah and and also you know our our parents generation are working longer as well so I look at my mum she had her first child when she was in her early 20s and her, and her mum at that point um was not that far away from retiring you know so she uh she had a grandmother you know the, the grandmother was was around you know or like my my dad's mum didn't work so she was just available and she was relatively young you know in her 50 early 50s and was there you know whereas now like my parents are both working and they're both in their, their mid 60s so they both work full time so even if they live down the road their yeah ability to support us as a family are, are limited because of yeah of jobs so yeah as you say the yeah. systems aren't and there again talking about systems this is another thing like it's just not supportive the system that we live in is not supportive for for families it supports <laughs> It supports money, right? That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. So unfortunately, that's the reality. Yeah, it supports individualism and people going out and making money and yeah, um, yeah. Oh, well. Yeah, and I'm not saying that like you shouldn't do this or go work and make money. I'm not saying that, yeah. <laughs> but I'm just I think there should be a more balance, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, do you have any tips for how we can create that kind of community around us or? yeah I, I guess it's hard but um you have to be proactive and go look for your mm -hmm. for your tribe tribe yeah the word? yeah, yeah. <laughs> and talk about That's how hard it is and and say I need help or does anyone yeah, else find this hard and and you will find that everyone does <laughs> yeah exactly so everyone is struggling nobody's saying yeah. <laughs> that um, but yeah like for example I moved to Spain in 2016 I, I was in Canada before I lived there for 11 years my husband is Canadian I had my first child in Canada and we came here for my research 
um, and and we didn't know anyone, anyone. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, and uh, but I have friends for life now. I had like a little group of friends, mm. um, about five families who are like, oh my god, we get along, we have the same values, principles, and the way I found them was through uh, a school. So I was looking for a school that, um, you know, was, um, uh, I don't like this word, but I was looking for an alternative school. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yeah. Um, And I found a really small school where parents needed to do some work to maintain the school for the administration stuff. And we got really close like that. And now these are my friends. And that's how I found it. I guess you had to look for them in places you know and so I'm, I'm interested because I found making friends as a parent initially very hard but actually as I've um as the time's gone on like really easy now <laughs> like and I wonder if my brain has become more social or more like friendly or community seeking because I'm ah, a parent this- Oh, this is such an interesting uh, comment you're making. It just it reminds me of a research that has been done, and they look at the social brain in women. Yeah. I think they had babies, they had like newborns or something, and they saw that women actually um, were better at detecting um, happy faces or something. Like their social uh, reading was better. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I don't know I don't know if it's just given me like a confidence or something but now I'll just walk up to anyone else with a kid and chat (laughs) and yeah and and I don't know and I feel like I've become better at building new relationships so I don't yeah but that's really interesting that 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 research exists yeah it does I forget the details but it was so interesting yeah oh well well done for you for moving across an ocean um (laughs) with two kids at the time or yeah. No, I had my second one here in oh, Spain. Oh, wow. And, oh, sorry, I know we're, sh- we're running out of time as well. Um, and I could just ask you so many questions, but I would love just quickly to ask you about, so obviously you've talked about growing up in Paraguay and that um, allo parental, you know, extended family um, network that you experienced in infancy and childhood. And then you were in Canada, so in North America, which was very different, I assume, to parenting. Mm-hmm. And then Spain again, so like three very different cultures. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in Canada, so here, here's the thing. I was so lucky though in Canada because um, my husband took three months off mm-hmm. when we had our first. And so I wasn't alone with my baby. And then when my husband went to work, my mom came to visit. And also all of my husband's family live there in the same city. So I didn't have that experience myself, but I did have some friends who just had a baby like around the same time and all of them were crying or were like really sad. And I just couldn't understand because that has, that wasn't my experience. And I was a new mom. So I was like, I don't know what's happening. (laughs) I thought that what I went through was normal. Yeah. But actually, no, it's more normal the other <laughs> in our culture in that in this like North America uh, so then with the years I started to put the pieces together I'm like okay so they were missing yeah they they were alone with the babies like the majority of the day yeah. uh, in Spain Spain is very similar to North America too okay. um, 
yeah, um, moms are do, are pretty alone too in postpartum, and um, the the leave too is quite uh, it's not appropriate. Like it's four months or something, which I like. No. <laughs> Yeah. Oh dear. Well, I'm really happy for you that you had that postpartum period that where you got the support that you needed. It just shows us that really like that that uh longing for the village, that that need for our community when we become parents is real and um it doesn't have to be this way and, and I think um we're we're yeah. really as a culture now um in the West starting to wake up to that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for giving me an hour of your time today. Your work is just amazing and so fascinating. Like brains blow my mind. <laughs> thank you so much.